This is episode number three of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, the podcast for engaged citizens and public leaders who want to lead change through politics with their integrity intact. Most of us probably have not sat in the back rooms of politics, the places where decisions are actually made. But today's guest on the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast has, and he's done the rest of us a favor, especially those of us who try to have an impact on the decisions being made in our communities, states, provinces, and countries. Graham Steele is the former finance minister for the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. In his new book, The Effective Citizen, he has drawn a roadmap of the politician's brain. He's codified the thought patterns, behaviors, and patterns of speech that even the best of our politicians use as crutches. He's done this so that we as citizens can understand them. Beyond that, he's taken it a step further and mapped out how citizens can use that information to be more effective at advocacy and to influence policy change. He explores the big picture, how patient and persistent advocacy can have a major impact, but he also talks about the granular, like how to follow up on a meeting with a decision maker so they're more likely to do what they told you they'd do. And the most productive relationships between citizens and politicians are those where these things can be said out loud. To sit down at a table with a politician as an equal. And it starts with sitting down with a politician. Graham Steele was in politics for 15 years, three as a political staffer, 12 as an elected official, and three of those were as finance minister. Before politics, he was a Rhodes Scholarship recipient and worked for a decade as a lawyer. He now teaches business law at Tahazi University in Halifax. My first book was called What I Learned About Politics, and, and what I wanted to do in that book was sort of tell the story of about what it's like as, as somebody getting into politics, what they experience, what they see, what they feel. And particularly, it was based on this idea that most government decision-making doesn't happen in the assembly. It happens in closed rooms, in office buildings, like around the assembly, you know, whether that's in Halifax or Ottawa or capitals across the country or around the world. The real decision-making is made behind closed doors. And I wanted to lift the curtain, open the window, whatever metaphor you want to use about that. So that was the first book. And this one is a little bit different. This is uh, not so much uh, going into the back rooms of decision-making, but looking right inside the politician's brain. And, and, and the basis for it was that when I w- especially when I was a minister, I would meet with all kinds of people, all kinds of citizens, all kinds of interest groups, big and small, you know, rich and, you know, uh, just running by, the, by the, the skin of their teeth. And and what struck me was how few people really understood what was going on in politics. So they couldn't be effective if they didn't understand what was going through the mind of the person on the other side of the table. And that happened to be me. So this book is what I consider to be the last piece of unfinished business from my time in politics. And that is to say to citizens, This is what you need to know to be effective. This is what's going on inside that politician's head uh, that's sitting across the table from you. And so that's the first half of the book, what's going on inside a politician's head. And the other one is, okay, what do you do with that? How do you get things done with that knowledge? So maybe let's let's start with that first piece. What is going on inside of a politician's head and and what what is it that, based on clearly you've got some observations about people who are ineffective citizens. Um, what are the things that we're obviously missing or that the, the majority of people who are trying to make change are, are missing? Well, part one of the book, which is the first half of the book, has three uh, chapters in it. And it, very simply, it is 
uh, how politicians think, how politicians behave, and how politicians speak. And if you if you want something from a politician, if you want to partner with politician to get things done, it's best to think of it as a kind of negotiation. And, and, and it's a two-level negotiation. First of all is you're trying to get your share of scarce government resources. There's only a limited pot of money and lots and lots of demands on it. So you're trying to make a claim on that pot of money. But then the other dimension is, is, is laying a claim on the politician's time and attention. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to play on that level of negotiation, you have to know what's, what the, the politician's environment is like. And it's really, uh, it's like any negotiation. You need to know what is the bargaining position of the person on the other side of the table. Like, you, you know wh- where you're coming from. You know what's going on on your side. But you're not going to get anywhere in negotiation if you don't know what's going on on the other side. And that, I think, is the main thing that I saw missing from the citizens and lobby groups that wanted to meet with me is that they didn't show much interest in knowing what my environment was like, like what were the forces working on me? What mm-hmm. what was I thinking about as they sat across the table from me? And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm trying to say to people, if you want to be an effective citizen, you have to stop th- thinking about yourself or at least not let that be the only thing you're thinking right. about and think about, okay, how do I turn this politician on the other side of the table into a partner on the same side of the table? Mm-hmm. In, in the book, you kind of categorize the kind of people you would uh, get, and, and the words you use are, there, there's four of them, a rung, a hurdle, uh, a nettle, or a chore. I wonder if you can talk a bit about uh, what each of those means, and uh, you know, obviously I'm guessing most politicians wouldn't, act, wouldn't actually use those terms, but are probably familiar with the concept. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I'm not saying that politicians literally have a list, you know, rung, hurdle, nettle, chore, but what I'm saying is that in effect they're doing this. So when you're a politician and you're meeting with a group, you size, you, or, or a citizen, you size them up pretty quickly, and you just say, okay, can they help me politically? Can they hurt me politically? And these categories are uh, are just the different permutations and combinations of that. So, for example, uh, a rung is somebody that can't hurt me politically but could help me. So, therefore, it's, um, it's a rung on my ladder to success. I can work with them as long as it's, you know, working to my benefit. But as soon mm-hmm. as it starts appearing a little bit difficult, I can drop them without worrying about the electoral uh, effect that it has on me. Um, uh, a, a chore is is somebody where they can't really hurt or help you politically, but they've come to you with a request, and so you do it out of a sense of duty. It, but if you have time, and if there's not something better to do, it, it's kind of inherent in the word chore. You you do it, but you don't don't take any great delight in it. Um, a nettle, obviously, is somebody who just, um, there's no political benefit. All they can do is is hurt you. And so you, just like grasping a nettle, you don't do it if you don't have to, and you do everything you can basically to push them away, close the file, hand it on to somebody else, just make them go away because there there is no uh, there is no political electoral reward in, in working with them. Yeah, so every minute you spend with them is a wasted minute. And a hurdle is actually the best place to be. Those are people that um, can help 
or hurt you politically. So you've got to make sure that you treat them carefully. Just think of a runner going down the track in a hurdles race. You got to yes, you got to you got to run, but you got to get over the hurdle. You can't trip over the hurdle um, if you want to get to the finish line. So the basic idea is is that you categorize people because you got to prioritize as a politician where you're spending your time and money. And let's never forget the fundamental concern of a politician at all times, every day, is um, how does this help me get reelected? Right. And I think that's a, uh, speaking of hurdles, I think uh, that is a bit of a hurdle for the average citizen to get over and uh, not in the way you use, you use the term, but yeah. uh, in, in the sense that, because uh, you spend a lot of time talking about the psychology, and I think the average citizen or the average person that's coming to the table wants to think that it's something other than the the drive to get reelected that is going to motivate the I politicians. Know, and, but, you know, I don't really get this because a lot of people say, ah, oh, it shouldn't be that way, it shouldn't be that way, and they want their uh, politicians to be more noble, more angelic. And I don't understand it because I think – but. If you want to be an effective citizen, if you want to get things done, don't you have to deal with your politicians the way they are? And even though maybe in an ideal world everything would be done selflessly with no um, with no thought about you know what what are the future electoral consequences, that is not the world of democratic politics. I don't think it ever has been. There's no prospect that it will be. So let's deal with politicians as they are. And that's what the book is about, is saying this is what's actually going through a politician's mind. Let's figure out how to work with that rather than decrying the fact that they're not maybe a little bit more noble and, uh, you know, more angelic uh, in in the way they go about their business. Politicians are motivated by a lot of things, but first and foremost, every day, I'm telling you this, is what do I need to do to get reelected? That's just a fact. That's right. what's going through their head. A fact that they never really admit to generally in office. Not so baldly, not not so openly, but uh-huh. it's it's there. And I look, um, I was in politics for 15 years, three years as staffer, 12 years in, uh, in elected office. During that time, I met uh, politicians, a lot of politicians from across the country and, in fact, around the world because of some democratic development work that I've done all over the place. And I'm telling you, this is what's going through the minds of a democratic politician. And there's no use saying, well, that shouldn't be what's going through their mind, or I wish I wish they were more noble. Mm-hmm. That's what's on their mind. So if you want to be an effective citizen, you have to figure out how to right. deal with it. So you're suggesting that the best place to be is to be a hurdle, uh, something that you, you the politician cannot avoid working with or, or getting over. Do you have some examples in mind of, of groups or people or, I guess, movements for change that have been strong hurdles? Sure. Uh, I, there's an example I give in the book, and I actually use the name. Uh, in Nova Scotia, we have an organization called the Ecology Action Center. They've been around since 1971. Um, they're an in, essentially an environmental lobby group, and they're really good at what they do. They're really knowledgeable at what they do, and they are—they have shown themselves over the years to be ready to work with any government that's willing to talk to them. They've also established themselves as go-to people for the media, so no matter what the environmental issue is that's going on, you know that the, uh, the Ecology Action Center is going to be asked for their opinion, mm-hmm. so it may as well, they may as well be happy if you can right. make them happy, and 
you want to make sure that you understand that they understand what you're doing as government and that um, and that you understand where they're coming from so they can also hurt you because if you do things that surprise them or that they think are bad policy, they will say so. They will say publicly and say often they will uh, disseminate it to their rather large membership base. And as I said, they're the go-to uh, people for the media. So he- they can help you if they're on side with you. They can hurt you if they're not. They're the classic hurdle. And you know, in every jurisdiction, there's organizations like that. But uh, I, I want to repeat because it's important that's not something that just happened they earned it over a long period of time right and that's one of the messages in my book is that if citizens want to be effective there's work that they have to do there's no magic bullet there's no no silver bullet no magic wand they can wave to to make mm-hmm. things go their way instantly there's some work that has to be put in and I, I make some suggestions in the book about the kind of work that needs to be done can you talk a bit more about that, like what the um, what what that would look like yeah. for perhaps a fledgling organization <laughs> or a fledgling kind of advocate that's just you know getting their feet wet? There's lots of ideas in the book. The second part I had talked earlier about the first half of the book. The second part of the book is okay. Now that we know what's going on inside the politician's brain, what do we do with that? So there's all kinds of suggestions in the second half of the book. Mm-hmm. But the one I want to focus on in answer to your question is to build public support. Now, remember that I said politicians in one way or another, on one level or another, are always thinking about the next election campaign. Mm -hmm. And elections are about votes. And so politicians become very savvy very quickly about votes. And what's a vote-moving issue? How many people are motivated by this issue to actually change their vote, potentially. And honestly, there's not that many issues um, that change people's votes, much less issues that change a lot of people's votes. So the the most fundamental thing that an effective uh, citizen or organization needs to do is build public support. That's easy to say and really hard to do. You can't can't fake it. People People try to fake it. Um, claiming, for example, that they represent many more people than they actually do or that their members have a depth of feeling about an issue that they don't actually do. And the, the thing you need to realize is that politicians become very adept. They become very savvy about gauging public opinion. So mm-hmm. if you're sitting in a politician claiming public support that you don't have, they know it. They know it, and and then you lose credibility with them because they know that you don't have the public support that you're claiming. So you got to build it, and it's not just building it that's difficult. It's sustaining it over a long period of time. Sometimes there's a hot issue, and everybody's all worked up about it, but politicians, especially the more experienced one, learn that the heat can go out of an issue really quickly, and they'll just wait you out. They'll just wait you out. And so even though you may think you have, a, you have a lot of public support, maybe you have it today, but will you still have it tomorrow? Will you still have it next week? People move on, and politicians know that. So building and sustaining public support in a way that a politician knows they're going to have to deal with that uh, in the run-up to the next election, that's, that's the way to be the most effective. So I guess I hear what you're saying when it's about being effective. Um, and uh, I guess the implication of that is that the, the most effective citizens are the ones that can um, afford to or are willing to consider the uh, 
um, the perspectives uh, and the needs and interests of the politician seeking re-election. Um, and I wonder if it's fair to say that it's a responsibility of citizens, particularly when it comes to questions of justice um, and, and questions of equity uh, amongst groups that are already marginalized, already impoverished, already discriminated against. Um, is it their responsibility to consider the, the politicians' uh, need for re-election? And I guess I wonder when I was hold, reading the book, I was holding the question, um, had you considered how that might land with with folks from from communities that are uh, in those circumstances? Yeah, I, I I don't think that there are groups or issues to whom these um, thoughts and techniques that I write about in the book don't apply. And in fact, it's one of the weaknesses that that uh, groups encounter in trying to be effective is it's hard work. And so they tell themselves some reason. They give themselves some reason why they don't actually have to do it. And it's like, no, you just sometimes I just want to reach out and shake them and say, no, no, you have to do the work. You are in a complicated negotiation with a politician about the allocation of public resources and the allocation of the politician's time. It is two-level chess, it, and it's very difficult. And you must never forget that no politician has to deal with you if they don't want to, right? Because what's the fundamental job of an elected official is to sit in the parliament, sit in the assembly, and vote on laws and budgets. That's the one thing that nobody else can do. Right. Every other thing that a politician does can be done by somebody else, but not that. Nobody else is allowed to sit in their seat. And they don't have to do anything else if they don't want to. There is no jo- job description for a, for a politician. There's nothing that says, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this. There's nothing. And so you are negotiating with them for their time and attention. But he- here's what I would add to what I said earlier about um, the the most fundamental thing that effective citizens need to do is build real and lasting public support, which is not easy. And that is that politicians, within that context, they tell a story to themselves about who they are and what they're doing. And you need to understand that story because remember, they're in the driver's seat. They can walk away from the table anytime they want to. They don't have to deal with you. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is you want to understand their story. You want to understand who they tell themselves they are and what they're all about. And absolutely, politicians are good, uh, community-minded, gregarious people. They got into politics for a reason, although often it's a very vague reason. Uh, you know, they wanted to make a difference or they wanted to do something. And so you need to understand what is it they're telling themselves. And sometimes that is about fairness or justice or making their community better. And so the most effective citizens are the ones who will understand that story and then weave the two stories together. Take the the citizens or organization's story, what it is they're trying to accomplish, and weave it together uh, with the politician's story and so that the politician becomes a partner rather than an obstacle that you have to get through, right? Mm-hmm. So they become somebody, so metaphorically think of it as bringing the politician from being across the table to be sitting beside you saying, okay, how are we going to accomplish this together? Because at the end of the day, politicians want to go home and look their family in the eye and say, I did something good today. 
right? And you want to be that good thing mm-hmm. that they did something that they're proud of, something that they're willing to, um, they're willing to put their time and attention into. Because remember, for any given politician on any given day, there are a thousand other things they could be doing. Mm-hmm. So you got to give them a reason to spend their time on your issue. And I, I mean, I I imagine the that. Uh, Interweaving the two stories, uh, that's a helpful, um, a helpful turn of phrase. And I, and I think it's probably something that most people who are on the citizen t- side of the table may have some challenges with kind of having their story appropriated. And I think, uh, again, because they're not, have, they're not in, in the mix with that uh, kind of the electoral incentive that the politician has is the, what I have seen at least is that the people on the citizens' side of the table generally not getting paid for the work they're doing, generally uh, you know, putting a lot of uh, sweat, and it's their passion area. So if there's one area that they're going to be an idealist on, it's this issue that they're bringing to the politician. Um, so in that respect, I, I, I anticipate, uh, as would I, uh, have some hesitation around kind of like allowing the story that me or the group I'm working with uh, is trying to get out there to, to be interwoven with uh, someone's story who has a clear self-interest. And yet they're the decision maker or they have access to the decision makers. So like it or not, you got to find a way to work with them. So you've reminded me of something else um, that I talk about in the book, and that is this whole issue of credit, credit, mm-hmm. credit and its um, uh, ugly uh, sibling uh, blame. But let's leave blame aside and, and talk about credit for now. Now, the coin of politics is credit. Who gets credit for doing things? And uh, powerful citizens are not afraid to let other people take credit. It is amazing what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets credit. Now, it's just the nature of politics, of electoral politics, where the politician is always thinking about next election. It's quite unlikely that they're going to... Um, uh, do something and work on something and take no credit for it. Right. It, it happens. Look, it happens. Um, but it's not the nature of the political business. And often they will take too much credit or take credit for things that they didn't actually do. And yet some really effective citizens are okay with that because really effective citizens, the only thing that matters to them is getting the thing done. Whatever, whatever the objective is, whatever the, the organization exists for, or whatever the citizen's passion is, what matters most is getting the thing done. But at the same time, an effective citizen knows that credit is something that also can be negotiated. And you don't hand it out for nothing. And you, it's part of the deal with the politician is what kind of credit are they going to get in return for being a partner that helps get things done. Mm-hmm. So, how? I mean, that sounds like a, for the average person on the citizen side of the table, that sounds like it's probably a an awkward or difficult conversation. What? How does that sound if you're you're trying to to negotiate credit? Uh, in the book, I talk about in a number of different places. I talk about people getting over their fear of talking to their politician about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on in the politician's head and the most productive relationships between citizens and politicians are those where these things can be said out loud and they can be put on the table. They need to be put on the table. 
um, because other, otherwise you're giving uh, too much advantage to the politician. Really part of the point of the book is, is to arm citizens with the knowledge they need to sit down at a table with a politician as an equal. And it starts with sitting down with a politician. And I, I tell the story in the, uh, the book about when I was a politician sitting in my constituency office, the phone would ring, and like at least half the time people would start the conversation by saying to me, oh, I know you're so busy. And it's like I loved it when they did that because that handed the power to me. Right. And um, people were weakening themselves right from the beginning by saying, in effect saying, okay, you will now control how this conversation goes because without you even saying anything, I've acknowledged that you're really, really, really busy and that you can cut the conversation short or Mm -hmm. you're handing control to politicians. So I say, okay, stop. Don't do that. Their job is to talk to citizens. That's what they're there for. And so don't apologize. Don't explain. Just pick up the phone, call them, and say, okay, here's here's what I'm calling about. And not only that, but another tip that I give in the the book is that – my experience was that most citizens communicate with their politicians by email. It's quick, it's easy, but not as scary. It yeah, but it, it helps you maintain an emotional distance. You're not actually looking the person in the eye. Hmm. And who does that give an advantage to? Not the citizen. It gives the advantage to the politician, uh, and it's far more effective to pick up the phone and call them, or even better, go into the office and meet with them, or even better than that invite them to come to your home or your office. As I say in the book, all this stuff about, you know, where a meeting is held, how long it lasts, who's there in the room, that's all part of the negotiation. And you need to not hand the power over to the politician. And it it really does seem like there's sort of, uh, and, and you do talk through it in detail in the book, kind of like every every little aspect of your outreach or your invitation, whatever it might be, um, plays into sort of the kind of the power transactions in between you and the, and the politician. Right. And, and, and that's exactly right. And also, um, you need to know where the politician is coming from. Like, uh, for example, let's suppose you arrange a meeting with a politician, you and your local community group, you've mm-hmm. arranged a meeting with a politician, you're going to meet with them for half an hour in their constituency office on such and such a day. All right. What was a politician doing before you got there? What's the politician going to do after you leave? You need to know that. You need to know their context. You need to know their environment. Like, mm-hmm. what what are they doing? And so in the book, I talk about, well, what, what does a politician do all day? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, heaven knows that uh, our elected assemblies don't sit that often. The the Canadian federal parliament sits, what is it, six months a year, tops. Mm-hmm. Um, a provincial legislature typically will sit a grand total, you know, adding up all the different sessions for two or three months out of the year. Uh, what does a politician do the rest of the time? And you need to know that. Mm-hmm. You need to, in order to understand um, all the all the ways of uh, not taking advantage of politicians, but at the very least being on a level playing field with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, effective citizens want to know this stuff so that they can enter into that negotiation on a level playing field. And it, 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 when I was writing the book, 
there's a whole section that's now gone. It was long and rather plodding, but it was just basic civics. Yeah, that's the section I always want to read when I hear about that. Uh, I know, it, the one that got chopped. But, <laughs> yeah. it, it was a, but citizens, if you want to be effective, you have to know the basics about, you know, how, you know, how does an assembly work? How does, right. how do, how does a political party work? What are the political parties? And, mm-hmm. and, and that basic information, you can't not know that stuff and talk to a politician and expect to be talking on, on a level playing field, which is where you need to be mm-hmm. if, you ha- if, if you want to have any hope of being effective. Curious about uh, the, the end of the meeting with the politician or the point when it comes time to kind of make an ask. And uh, in the book, you talk about some of the, I guess, the, the non-conclusive ways that these sort of uh, mm. meetings can end and some of the really specific things you can ask for as uh, a person on the citizen side of the table that, from what it sounded like, aren't necessarily the things that everybody asks for when they come to the table and really kind of bind the politician to your group and your issue. Can you talk about what some of those kind of yeah. specifics might be? I like that expression, the ask. It, it, you might be surprised at how many citizens a group met with me and were either never did make an ask or the ask was remarkably vague. You got to pin the politician down. You have to. And remember that uh, politicians are very skilled at using words. That's why there's a whole chapter devoted to how politicians speak. And so I go through all the different techniques that politicians have of saying pretty things without committing to do anything. And one one of the fundamental messages in the book is that words don't matter. The only thing that matters is actions. And when you when all the smoke and dust clears away, what has the politician done is the only thing that ought to count. Hmm. And not saying, well, I'm really on your side, but I can't do anything, or, or I, I really support what you're trying to do, but I know I voted against it in the legislature, but that's only because of the pressure I'm under from my leader. But, I, you know, I'm really, I, right. I really support what you're doing, even though I voted against you. It's like... None of that counts. The only thing that counts is what's being done. So at the end of a meeting with a politician, both sides, especially the citizen side, should leave the room with a very clear idea of who is going to do what and Mm. when. And I make suggestions, very practical suggestions like taking notes in the meeting. Make a recording of the meeting. Although that's oh, that, 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 let's talk about well, that because let, that's let, controversial. Let's come back okay. to that. Um, <laughs> but uh, write to the politician after the meeting and based on your notes and say, okay, here's what we talked about. Mm-hmm. If there's anything that you disagree with in in my notes, these are my notes. If there's anything right. that's inaccurate, tell me what it is. Then you have a, a record. Who's supposed to do what when? And then you follow up so that there's some accountability. And you know, politicians will be taken aback because they're not used to being held accountable. They're not used to being, um, uh, to, to, to having sort of set targets and set deadlines because mm-hmm. they love to escape meetings without any of those things. Right. As, as do I, to be fair. Right. <laughs> Most people, I imagine, go to meetings not hoping they're getting more work. Right. But, but, but without that, the citizen can't know that they're going to be effective. To, and so then you follow right. up. Okay, you say to the politician, okay. The next time you meet with them, you say, okay, at the last meeting you said you were going to do this. Did you do this? Mm-hmm. The politician says, well, yeah, I had some conversations. Do you have Do you have evidence of those conversations? Do you have letters you can show us? Anyway, I, I go into all that in the book, but it's to be as specific as possible. 
It's just about uh, accountability and remembering that on some, in some very real sense, the politician works for you. Right. And you're looking for the same kind of accountability that you would expect from an employee who is given a task. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the recording. Okay. I guess, why would you suggest that people record these meetings? Wouldn't that ultimately well, hurt man, the relationship uh, with Facetiously, the I would say, because politicians hate recordings. Um, one of the rhetorical techniques that politicians learn is vagueness, is mm. a- ambiguity. Well, who promised what exactly when to? No, I, I didn't. I didn't say that. I didn't promise that. Mm-hmm. And often these days, Mark, it's it's amazing how many how many politicians um, get into trouble because there is a recording of a meeting and they deny having said something mm. or they say something that they really wish they hadn't. And these days. Everybody's walking around with a smartphone, which is a camera and a recording device. And I just say to citizens, use it. Use it. You d- ambiguity and vagueness is part of the politician's toolkit, and it's to their advantage. And if you have detailed notes or a recording, um, then the politician can't deny that that's what happened and what was said. And yeah, there's some politicians who will be taken aback by that. But again, that's one of their techniques. They say, no, no, right. you can't record this. Or like, why are you doing that? Because Canadians tend to be very polite. And if the politician says, no, 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 I don't want you to record this. Yeah, yeah, fine. But, but remember, that's all to the politician's advantage. So this is part of the negotiation mm-hmm. is you have a recording device in your pocket. Why would you not use it? <laughs> <laughs> and you make the point in the book that it's not as long as one person in the room knows that it's yeah. being recorded. Oh yeah, it's, it's not it's not illegal or anything like that. It just it will take the politician aback because they're not used to being held accountable in quite right that, that way. way. And they may in fact refuse to have a meeting that's recorded. And it's but it's it's something that a smart citizen will evaluate in the circumstances. If the right. politician the doesn't want, yeah, if the politician doesn't want to record it, are they really our friend? Are they really on our side? What are they afraid of? Um, that kind of thing. It's, it, but it's politicians know what's to their advantage. And what I'm doing in my book is trying to give citizens a toolkit to level that playing field. So there are so many things that are broken and dysfunctional about politics, about the current system, about the current political culture, and you've written about those things. Um, And you've also written that uh, you're not professing to have any solution or special prescription to solving that problem. Um, But my question is, is this, if people follow your advice, if all of us step up and be more effective citizens within a broken system... Um, and become more effective, uh, obviously the immediate effect is that we're more effective, but is there a risk that the aggregate effect is that by participating effectively in a broken system that we potentially make it mm-hmm. worse? It's a, I, I've never th- thought of it that way before because uh, y- you're right in the sense that my book sort of takes the system as a given, or the way I would put it is it takes a political culture as a given. It's big and strong and deep and it's been around for a long time and it's not going to change anytime soon so what i'm writing about in the book isn't going to lead to that kind of systemic change like uh, proportional representation or you know that kind of system change 
but that's okay. Other people can work on that. But what I'm, I think it's important for people to say the system is what it is, and it's it doesn't get you anywhere to rail against it and say, well, it shouldn't be that way. So we're all going to act as if it's not that way because politicians ought to be more angelic. Therefore, we won't treat them as they actually are. Um, I, I think the book is says, look, whether you like it or not, this is what politics is, so let's figure out how to work with it. So my last question is, um, you made a lot of really persuasive arguments about how to be effective and get results as an advocate, and I imagine many people will uh, hear that and uh, take them uh, kindly. Uh, But a piece of resistance I often hear when we're talking about helping people get more engaged in politics is that they're fearful of going... Um, too far in because uh, their integrity might be compromised. They might have to compromise their own values. Um, Do you have a a suggestion or two for how citizens and advocates can be more effective while keeping their integrity intact? Well, one one thing that I can um, say about many citizens that I've come across over the years who are uh, singularly ineffective is that they are absolutely uncompromising. They, They treat politics as if it's um, a matter of absolutes, you know, do it this way or you're wrong, you're bad, you're stupid, all the kind of stuff we say about politicians. But people need to understand that politics, democratic politics, fundamentally is about compromise. There Mm -hmm. are competing interests in our society. There are competing values. Compromise is not a dirty word. Taking half a loaf is not a bad thing if you can't get the whole loaf. I do say in the book, take the half a loaf when it's being offered and go back and get the rest, you know, one slice at a time. Mm-hmm. But uh, citizens who go into this business of trying to affect change with absolutes are going to be very disappointed very quickly. But I would also say that you have to know what are those parts of yourself, your character, your value system that are not... Uh, can't be compromised because the th- and the thing about my book and my first book as well is I'm trying to warn people I'm trying to say look if you get into the politics this is what's coming at you you've got to go into it with your eyes wide open so that you know where the compromises or the you know the bad forces are coming from so that you're ready for it so that you're steeled against it um, so there have to be some things that can't be compromised. And everybody who actually goes into politics and stands for political office or simply citizens who want to get something done. Mm-hmm. You have to know what that is before you go in and, and, and then be resolute about not compromising those things. But it, there, there's that hard core. It's probably less and smaller than people think. So you spent over a decade in politics. What were those things for you, things you weren't willing to, to compromise on? don't lie don't lie about things i only remember once and it's kind of like um burned into my soul one time that i will always remember i stood up in the legislature and said something that i knew as i was saying it was not true and i thought that was there was like an internal gasp Not 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 out loud, but my inside voice said, "You just you just said something you know." Not was true. this like a verbal type? No, <laughs> no, no, no. It was something. It was a claim that I was making about you know the effect that a particular 
um, NDP party position would have. And I knew it wouldn't have that effect, yeah. but for, for electoral purposes, we had to pretend that it would. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was once. And, and that was that, and, and always, always treat people, you know, as, as, as being worthy of attention, never use people, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then dispose of them once their use was finished. That, that to me was very important. Every every person, every single person, is of value, and that they were. I was not going to participate in any process or decision making that treated people as disposable mm-hmm. means to an end. And I, you know, I think to a large extent, I was able to keep true to that. Uh, yeah, that's what it was for me. That was this week's episode of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, you can find the links to any of the uh, articles, resources, and books that were mentioned in the show by scrolling through the episode description and the show notes, which are also posted over at springtide.ngo slash GYA1. That's for Govern Yourself Accordingly episode one. Govern Yourself Accordingly is a podcast produced by Springtide, and we are a Canadian charity committed to helping you lead change through politics with your integrity intact. Find us at springtide.ngo, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. Subscribe to the podcast, search for Govern Yourself Accordingly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates if you scroll down on this post and get a message whenever a new show is released every Tuesday. There are a couple things you can do to help the show. A big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. You can also share this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. You can find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash GYA, followed by the show number. Better yet, if you thought of someone during this conversation, during this episode, someone who might appreciate hearing one of the messages that was shared in the show, why not send them a personal message with a link to this episode? I am forever grateful for all the people who point me in the direction of helpful teachings and resources, and this is your opportunity to be that person for somebody in your life. 